We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, good morning, everybody. Well, you all are stuck with me this morning because Brother James is caring for his dad again, so he'll be doing that for a few weeks at least. And uh, I offered a Bible question and answer uh, session this morning, and uh, I'm Glad I uh, sent something out because I got three or four questions right away that uh, gave me some time to think about them, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. I have, I think, four uh, here, and we'll see how far we get through. Actually, maybe three and then an update on our uh, situation with regard to the pandemic, <clears throat> which uh, I've dealt with in this kind of setting before. First question, first question this morning, uh, somebody asked me uh, about God's love and punishment of evil. God's love and the punishment of evil. And this is a formulation of a classic question that often arises when witnessing to atheists or others who object to Christianity. And the question is something like this, if God is loving, how could he command Israelites to wipe out whole cities of the Canaanites during the conquest led by Joshua? Okay, are you with me? Uh, we have to remind ourselves and remind the questioner, hey, there's the brother that needs to be here right now. Uh, so we need to remind our, ourselves and uh, the person who's asking this question about God's love and punishment of evildoers, that God is love, but he's also holy. He's also righteous. He's also just in his innate, unchanging nature. He despises evil. And he expects it to be punished by, first of all, governmental authorities. And he, he assigns them as ministers of his to avenge wrath on evildoers. And then also he does so himself when human governments fail to carry out their responsibility to execute justice on those who are evildoers. God will clean up the mess at least afterward, if not at some soon time in the future. He's a good judge and he's not a wimpy one, okay? He's not one who lets people just uh, off the hook. Um, regarding the conquest in particular, this has been an ongoing kind of criticism of the Christian faith uh, for a long time, and the Jewish one as well, you know, that, oh, God told the Israelites to, uh, to do genocide, and, and thus they think they undercut God's goodness, but the reality is that there's more to the story than just that kind of unbelieving approach. In Genesis 15:13 to 16, the scripture says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that context is God is speaking to Abraham and saying, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be enslaved there for 400 years. And while they're there, the iniquity of the Amorites evidently is what he's saying here is going to come to full measure. To its full measure. And uh, that's the actually New International Version translation uh, says, their sin has not yet reached its full measure. 
God was long-suffering, in effect, giving them an opportunity to repent. Unfortunately, this is the problem with that. If God gives you time to repent, that also means that you have time to dig your grave even deeper if you choose to do so. And uh, it's, it's kind of like that, that old statement that the same sunshine that melts the wax hardens the clay. So it's one thing, and the time that God gives is one thing, but it provides basically two opportunities. Uh, maybe some would say three, but they boil down to two. The one opportunity is to make things right, to repent, to trust in Christ. The other is to go farther into sin. And, and uh, the third that some may suggest we find in Acts chapter 17, when people uh, heard Paul preaching at Areopagus in Acts 17, they said uh, some believed and some scoffed and some said, we'll hear you again about this matter, like procrastination. Yeah, it doesn't make much difference. I mean, there's not much difference between procrastination and rejecting because it's the same in the end. But So God was long-suffering, giving the Amorites an opportunity to repent, but they dug their grave even deeper. They did not repent, so God used Israel to judge them. One of the things that the Amorites did was to sacrifice their children in a fire offering to their false gods. The children were killed in this ritual. Welcome this morning. Glad that you're here. Hope the roads didn't delay you too much. Um, So we have to keep that in mind when we're thinking about the conquest. We're not talking about, you know, Canaanite uh, culture being, uh, you know, as I've often said even lately, uh, you know, full of Sunday school teachers that were just innocent little angels sitting around and, and being slaughtered by the Jews. That is not the case. They were pagan idolaters. Also, so we remind the, the questioner about God's holiness in addition to his love, that God is not only love. That's what people want. They want just a God who's love, who kind of washes out everything else and forgets it, but he's holy. We have to remind them of that. Also remind our questioner that God did similar things, similar kinds of severe punishment upon Israel itself when they began to sin in the same way as the Canaanites before them. So this, we could say this conquest went both ways. It didn't just go one way. It just happened that there was a delay from the first one under Joshua to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities of several centuries. But in the end, we see that God was very consistent in his approach. For example, in the north, in Israel, Ahab was an evil king. He followed idols and did like the Amorites had done before him. Turn to 1 Kings 21. uh, 1 Kings and chapter 21. And we'll see in verses 25 and 26. This is 1 Kings 21, 25. It says, But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up, and he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Now, if I was speaking to somebody, I would say, I'm just imagining myself speaking to a questioner, I would say to them, now, when it says that they followed idols, it doesn't just mean that they went to a temple and bowed down and prayed to an idol. They might have done that, and they also sacrificed children to those idols, to Molech or Chemosh, uh, human sacrifice, animal sacrifice, uh, all kinds of 
perverted rituals that they would do in these cases. So this is not just some kind of garden variety evil. This is very evil stuff. Ahab himself had a brief repentance, but then his son Ahaziah picked up where he left off. He was just like his father and his mother in chapter 22 of the same book, 1 Kings, verses 52 to 53, right at the end of the book. Uh, It talks about Ahaziah became king over Israel in Samaria. Again, we're in the northern kingdom. That's where they were headquartered in Samaria over the northern part, which is called Israel, not Judah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 52 says, and walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. Hmm. That's not good. A good portion of the northern kingdom was guilty of the same thing, not just the kings. In 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 17, um, we have a summary of what happened to the nation of Israel. 2 Kings 17, 17, uh, it says, And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. So they became what they had destroyed. They became what they had destroyed. And uh, thus God took them and their remnants to Assyria. What about examples in the southern kingdom? Ahaz, not Ahab, but Ahaz, uh, leading the southern kingdom in Judah, sacrificed his children in the fire, just like the nations whom God had destroyed during the conquest. That's 2 Kings chapter 16 uh, and verse number 3. It says, uh, Ahaz uh, walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. They acted just like their uh, former occupiers of that land had acted. You have to know that if they would go to this extent in their religious worship, that the whole system was shot through with vile wickedness. If, if people will do that, then what else are they doing behind the scenes and, and, uh, and the unrighteousness and so on? Manasseh was in the southern kingdom. He led the people in idolatry and child sacrifice, Second Chronicles 33. We won't go there, but you can look at that. By the way, these notes are in a, um, on the website, fbcaa.org slash docs. They're in a PDF file, which is the, like a presentation, PowerPoint slides instead of the normal format of the notes that I produce. So you have those there for you. All this information is there. Um, So much so, Manasseh led the nation of Israel that the text says they were worse than the nations that went before them. God destroyed them with Babylonian captivities. Remember three of them, 605, 597, and 586 B.C. And my conclusion of this is simply this, that God is consistent. God is consistent. Uh, He didn't just pick out one versus the other in some kind of ethnic superiority fashion. It all has to do with sin and idolatry and and those practices. So those are examples. Bottom line for me, if God did not punish sin in such cases or in any case, he would be neither just nor loving. And here's where justice and love meet together. Because wickedness would flourish and the relatively innocent victims of this 
wickedness would have no hope of vindication or for justice to be served. If, if uh, you think about it, if a judge has compassion for a victim, he will justly punish the criminal. But if he hates the victim, then he will not punish the criminal. Does that make sense? So love and justice meet in the place of the judge, and he has to exercise both. There's not just one person involved in this. Think of the, the kids that were killed. Where is their justice? Uh, one second. And uh, so if God did not serve justice, he would show that he hates humanity. In other words, true love has to be coupled with true justice, or you have neither love nor justice. Question. No, that it was to wipe out the people who, who did the, the sin. And yes, there, I, I, can't, I, I don't know how to answer that specifically. Yeah, I mean, the problem is the whole society is shot through with wickedness, and the parents are teaching the children to do the same thing, the surviving children to do the same thing. So, uh, yes, God's ways are explicable, but not entirely understandable. So I have to leave it at that. It's a good question. Um, yeah, what about all the children who are killed by these uh, Israelites coming through? And what about all the children killed by the Babylonians coming and killing them, you know, who are Israelites as well? So, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a difficult situation, but we do the best we can trying to uh, explain it. So... Happily, however, God joins loving kindness and mercy with judgment so that those who repent and believe in Christ have their sins justly paid for by Christ and in this way can enjoy life free of sin's dominion and promised eternity, a promised eternity with God. So you see, God joins mercy and judgment or love and judgment in the cross so that he can judge sin and he can allow us to have eternal life. So uh, how, could, how does Scripture express that in Romans chapter 3, that God is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus, so he's exercised his love towards uh, a person, uh, and he's also exercised justice toward them by substituting their, their payment and putting it upon Christ. Also, remind the questioner, and this is something that might touch uh, your question, Josh, and that is to remind the questioner, this is the third reminder now for our questioner or maybe correction to his thinking, that all people do die, and it's God's decision as to the timing. If he chooses to permit some to be extinguished from this life sooner than others, then we have to just take that as his decision as to what is right and good to do. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so it is appointed to people once to die. Whether they're young people or old people is um, not really pertinent because we're all young when it comes to God's time scale, whether we're seven or 70. Okay, so that's somewhat satisfying, but I don't really like the whole notion of uh, anybody going through and killing a whole bunch of people we're seeing that today in Ukraine, and um, it seems, you know, un, well, what's the word? <laughs> I mean, evil for one thing, unnecessary for another thing, 
uh, vexing for a third thing. Um, you know, we place a high value on life as Christians, and even if somebody is an evil person, we stand up for their life. Yes? I mean, everybody's evil. <laughs> now, of course, if somebody is um, uh, you know, guilty of a capital crime, like murder, or they're a serial murderer, we don't have, we shouldn't have uh, a whole lot of, how can I say, you know, compassion in the sense that, oh, you know, like the bleeding heart kind of thing, you know, oh, they should, we shouldn't punish them. Of course they should be punished because God has taught us that punishment is necessary and sometimes very severe. And in fact, it may be the severity of the punishment that bring, while the person's waiting for it, brings them to repent because they understand that they're evil sinners and that they have done wrong. But um, yeah, it's... We live in a world where there's going to be questions like this. You know, God is going to do things, allow Satan to do things, and Job is going to be sitting there scratching his head, wondering, why is this happening to me? And we're often in the place of Job, and uh, evil things are happening around us. I might comment, too, and, and you maybe have felt this. You know, we, we think we live in a kind of civilized world or society more so than maybe in past you know, generations, but such is not the case. I mean, you're seeing the savagery go on today in uh, the world, in Myanmar and in Ukraine and elsewhere in, in the world. And, um, you know, we're living through it. You know, we're living through a, potentially the beginning of another world war and another Holocaust kind of activity. I mean, Ukraine has, you know, already in 1930s was starved out by Stalin this has happened before, and it's just happening again. It's very discouraging. But according to God's wisdom, which we will have to trust and not question that wisdom. All right, that's that question um, and good follow-up. Second question, a young person in the church uh, passed a question through their Sunday school teacher uh, to me, and uh, this will provide the uh, most imaginative title of a question in our question and answer series history. And uh, the way I've titled it is Genesis and Fruit Pies. Okay, what's the question? What would have happened, this is from one of our teens, what would have happened if Adam and Eve had made a fruit pie with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mixed both of the fruits together, and ate them? Where did they come up with these questions? (laughs) Notice the statement is in the form of an if-then. If they made such a pie and ate it, then what would have resulted? Well, the if part obviously didn't happen, so this is a hypothetical, and some could say, well, who cares about what if? Uh, But we can kind of answer the question the best of our ability by looking at what the text of Scripture says about those two fruits. Remember the two trees that are particularly pointed out in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And they had fruits on them, and those were edible fruits. The text of Scripture says that eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil consigned Adam and Eve to death immediately. The day that you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. And you say, well, they didn't die. Oh, yes, they did. They were separated from God immediately. That is death. That is spiritual death. And then they, of course, being separated from the life of God and from the tree of life representing the continual sustenance of God, they were unable to 
maintain in their own natural vigor, and they began to fade away and to die, as the rest of us do in their race. They were now sinners, not because of the chemical composition of the fruit that they ate, but because they had disobeyed God's command. They exhibited pride, and they did not love God, for if they had loved him, what would they have done? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So they exhibited pride. You remember how Eve processed this. She saw, she thought that it was good for food and and delightful to the eyes and and nice to make one wise and all all that. She was deceived. That's Genesis 2.17 talks about the penalty there. Subsequently, eating the fruit of the tree of life would have consigned Adam and Eve to be alive forever. Look at Genesis 3.22, and I have it in my notes so I don't have to turn there. It says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, see that? Then what, God, what does God do? Well, he blocks access to the tree of life. He sends Adam and Eve away from the garden. He puts an angelic guard there to prevent any man from getting to that. And then as I would uh, understand the worldwide flood, if not before, the worldwide flood wiped out the Garden of Eden and took everything away that uh, could have been involved in that. But that's a detail that's of some speculation. So consequently, the answer to the mixed fruit pie question, you know, the two kinds of fruit in the one pie, um, Pie would contain both fruits, the sin-producing one and the life-producing one, and Adam and Eve would have been consigned forever to a life in sin, as indicated by Genesis 3.22. They would have had both effects. They would have had the effect of the the, the sin being brought upon them by eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then they would have been consigned to that life forever uh, in sin. And uh, that's what God was preventing. It was actually an act of God's mercy to prevent them from living and us from living forever in this sin-cursed condition. Now, your life is probably, I mean, it has been, many of you, very good. And you say, well, I could live for a long time in this condition, generally speaking. I mean, it's somewhat tolerable. But if you really become realistic about it, about how life is, that would not be very good. Um, Look at the vexation that we experience today in the world. Ask some Christians in Ukraine right now if they'd like to live forever under these kinds of conditions, or Myanmar, or China, or uh, any, any older Christian who is suffering from very uncomfortable health problems and facing death, some who have cancer. Would, would you like to live in that condition forever? God's merciful to us to cut short our sin by making our sinful flesh mortal. He keeps his word by keeping the assigned penalty for sin, which is death, right? The wages of sin is death. And he provides for us a way to live with him by being saved from our sins. It's a marvelous kind of juxtaposition of thoughts and plans that God has for his people, even though we have to experience death in the midst of this sin-cursed situation in which we find ourselves. Now, this brought up one little question to me, and that is whether a single bite of the tree of the uh, fruit of the tree of life would suffice, as I kind of have assumed, like one bite of that and you're good forever, 
or if regular consumption was required to maintain the life-giving power of the fruit, I tend to think the latter, in other words, an ongoing participation in this. We see that tree of life come up again later in the Bible, don't we? Yeah, in heaven, in fact, where it says that the leaves are for the healing or health of the nations. Uh, and and the, very, the precise nature of that and how it bears 12 different kinds of fruit once every different kind every month and so on is not entirely clear. It's not revealed to us how that works. But I take it that this, the connection that we have to God's life has to be ongoing not just a one-time connection, you know, once and done. If that were the case, then a single piece of this mixed fruit pie would not cause them ultimately to live forever, but to extend their life until they partook some more and some more and some more. And, but again, that's a matter of my, my uh, thinking or speculation. The Lord was very clear that if they were able to partake of that tree, free to do so, whether once or multiple times, they would live and live and live and live in that sin-cursed, separated from God condition, which is no way to live. So that's the uh, answer to Genesis and fruit pies, yes, as one pie maker approaches to ask a question. So the question for those who couldn't hear is, was, were Adam and Eve designed initially from the beginning to die in the garden? And the answer to the question is, no, they weren't. There was no death until sin entered the world. And there would be no death until sin entered. Romans chapter 5, 12 tells us that. And so they were designed provisionally to be able to live forever in that garden. Now, they, they were not prohibited from eating of the tree of life before they sinned. They could only not eat of what tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only that one was forbidden. Remember, they were allowed to freely eat of everything, but that one, that was the test that God gave them, and they failed that test. So uh, hypothetically, had they not sinned, they could have uh, participated in the tree of life every day if they wanted, every month, whatever, to, whatever was necessary to sustain them, however they pleased. And, you know, I, I don't know if we could say, how, how, the way I think of it, Emily, is that God created our bodies with the marvelous capacity to regenerate, physically I'm talking about, not spiritual regeneration, but to rebuild itself. It's always rebuilding itself, but that capability slowly dies away, and, ten, and you know, when we get old, and then we just can't keep up with the degradation that's happening. And that's because of the, the, the curse of sin and the removal of that sustenance from God, whether it's through the tree of life or, or some kind of direct life flow from God. So they would have had that, and that's what we're going to have again in the kingdom and in heaven because we're still going to be in physical bodies. Now, how, how is that going to work, and where's the second law of thermodynamics, and all, you know, how, uh, you know, how do we need to eat and all of that? Look. I don't know all those answers, okay? I'm waiting to find those out, and you will too. But uh, they were designed to provisionally be able to live forever had they not sinned, 
they were in, un, in a state of untested creature uh, innocence, we could say. And uh, when they, when they, if they had passed the test appropriately, God would have allowed them to continue on in the garden and to have offspring and to have a race of people who uh, would serve God perfectly for all eternity. But, of course, that wasn't God's ultimate plan. And so he uh, allowed them to fall into sin and then their natural vigor wore off and they died, just like we all do. Good question. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this brings us to a question about the resurrection body. This is our third. Ben, you have a follow-up? Yeah, Ben's pointing out a couple of points. One is that we have to remember that children are sinners too, and we did not, we do not know the fullness of the depth of their depravity, what the parents were teaching the children, and things like that. And of course, that was part of their iniquity becoming full. Remember, God gave them generations to get this right, but they used that to dig the hole even further, as I said. And um, so, you know, obviously, at some point. We could say, and sometimes back to Josh's question, I think of those um, as those death of children, if they were, if they were relatively innocent of these atrocities, as collateral damage that is, in a sense, unavoidable in this world. Unfortunately, so. Yes, sir. <laughs> Fruit pie question. Yes. Of the tree of life. Yes. Oh, I, I see. Yeah, you're 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 giving a different a different answer. I think you know it might it'd be interesting for somebody to write a little article on this question related to that, and that is. What is God doing with the knowledge of good and evil that has been now implanted into humanity through his plan of salvation to bring it to a point where it's a sanctified knowledge of good and evil in heaven as opposed to what it is now and what it was to Adam and Eve at the beginning? Because, you know, to, to suggest that, well, eating the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would somehow fast forward us through this whole uh, timeline that we're on and suddenly we'd be like we are going to be in heaven. There's something else that's happening in God putting a new nature in us in regeneration and sanctifying us and getting rid of the dominion of sin that fixes that bad version of the knowledge of good and evil. So 
All you theologians out there can work on that question. That is interesting. All right, 2 Corinthians 5.1, a question about the resurrection body. So the, the, the question revolves around two texts in the Bible. Number one, 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that set against or in comparison to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Obviously what's happening there is that two, uh, two groups of people are considered. In 1 Thessalonians, we have the alive group, the ones that are alive when the rapture comes, and then the ones who are dead. Okay? So the question seems to be this. 1 Thessalonians teaches that we, re- re- we receive our new glorified body at an event called the rapture. If we are alive when that happens, we are instantly changed to that glorified state. Are you with me so far? If Christ were to come now and rapture the church, we would all have our bodies transformed to a, an immortal body. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 54 says, we'll all be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. Up, okay? If we're already dead when the rapture happens, our bodies will be resurrected from the grave and rejoined to our spirits, which those spirits come with Jesus at the rapture for that purpose. So our spirit comes with him, our bodies are reconstituted from the dust, and join together with our spirits, and thus we are ever with the Lord in the same exact state as those who were alive and just were transformed instantaneously. The end result is the same, even though the starting point, either alive or dead, was different. Then in 2 Corinthians 5, when it speaks of us dying, our earthly house or tent is destroyed, it says, it says that we have a building from God, not of this creation, not temporary. So what building of God is this talking about? If it is our glorified body, it seems that saying we get that immediately when we die, not at some later point at the rapture. Do you see the question? Am I, am I framing the question properly? All right. Whereas 1 Thessalonians 4 seems to say we get our glorified body at the rapture, 2 Corinthians 5 Seems like we get it right away when we die. Which is it? Let me untangle it as follows. 1 Thessalonians 4 speaks of a particular future point in time, future to us. Can you imagine preaching this text after it happens? The rapture was future to all those Christians back there, but this is what happened. You know? Anyway, I think about that sometimes. It's still future to us, of course. 2 Corinthians 5 refers to the present era sometime before the rapture. So that's about when people die today. 1 Thessalonians is about what happens if they're already dead or alive at the future event of the rapture. Uh, So let's see. I think I've touched, covered all that. 1 Thessalonians speaks about events that happen instantly at the rapture. Dead are raised and get new bodies and the living get their new bodies. Now here's the key. 2 Corinthians does not speak of the particular timing of receiving your heavenly building from God. If you read the text and think, 
We have our new body immediately when we die. You're reading more into the text than is there. What does the text say? It says we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, but it doesn't say that we receive it immediately. Let me try to unpack that a little bit more. All 2 Corinthians 5 says is that we have a sure expectation of a future body. It is good as presently possessed, just delayed in its enjoyment. Let me make an illustration or a parallel. You know when Romans 8 says that we uh, were called, we were justified, we were what? Glorified. We are. We were. We will be. But it's as good as done. Okay, it's, it's settled. It will be the case, although we don't enjoy the full dimension of that at this time. The same thing here. We look forward to our glorified body, but we're not told in 2 Corinthians 5 when exactly we will get it. All we are told is that we can be sure we will have it. So in 2 Corinthians 5, let me kind of unpack then again a couple of the other verses related to it. In verse 2 it says, we desire to be clothed with our heavenly body. Our present existence is groan-worthy. Groan worthy, yes, we do groan in our present existence. That's why to live forever in this present existence, as we talked about with the fruit pie question, is not desirable. It's not really what we want to do when we think about it. Verse 3, if we are clothed with that body, that, uh, that glorified body, we will not be found naked. What does naked mean? Naked doesn't mean without clothing. It means without a body. Okay? It means disembodied spirit. That's what it's talking about, bodiless state. Verse 4, we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, uh, not because we want to be unclothed. You know, it's not that we want to die or that we want our spirits to leave our bodies, but the groaning really is that we would be further clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up by life. It's not like you have a death wish, right? We've often said that. None of us who are in our right and undepressed mind has a death wish. But when we say, boy, it will be so nice to be in heaven, we're not saying I want to die. We're saying I want to be swallowed up by immortality. I want a new body. I want a new existence. I want a new world in which righteousness dwells. We want to be transitioned immediately into our heavenly body. This is what it means when it says mortality is swallowed up by life. In other words, you'd rather go from like at the rapture, living to instantly change rather than living, suffering, dying, waiting for your glorified body, and then getting it later. That's okay. No, no complaints, okay? But the delay is not the ideal. So while we're in our present earthly bodies, we are away from the Lord, and we prefer to be rather away from the body and at home with the Lord. But notice... Paul does not say that when we leave our bodies at death, we immediately get our final heavenly body. We, he seems to indicate we're in some sort of intermediate state, which he calls naked or unclothed. Now, this intermediate state is the subject of some debate. Do we have a temporary tent until or our resurrection occurs, or do we remain in a spirit state until then in, heaven, in the intermediate heaven? I don't think that's a real big deal. Uh, either way, some have said, you know, humanity has to have some kind of body associated with it. 
And so when we go to heaven, we have to have some kind of temporary frame in which to exist. And, uh, you know, they would point to like Revelation 6, where the souls that are under the altar cry out to God. You know, spirits can evidently cry out to God. Angels are spirits. They can speak with God. But then, it's, then it says that they're to wait a little while longer until all of their brethren to be killed like them are, are accomplished. And they're given robes to wear. How do you wear a robe if you're a spirit? You know, you have some kind of body. Um, so we don't know exactly the details of that, but the point is there's a time delay between death today and the rapture in the future. If you assume that you get your final new body immediately when you die by reading more into 2 Corinthians than is there, then you will detect this conundrum as to what then new body would you get at the rapture. You get glorified body number two, No, if you assume rather that the time delay is just a pause before your final body is ready to be occupied, you will not detect any potential contradiction. So that's the answer to the question, basically. Let me read a a commentator who I found yesterday on my bookshelf that answers the question directly. It says, it might sound from this verse as if a believer receives this building from God the moment he dies, but that is not the case. He does not get his glorified body until Christ comes back for his church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. When what happens to the believer is this, at the time of death, his spirit goes to be with Christ where he is consciously enjoying the glories of heaven, his body is placed in the grave. The time of the Lord's return, the dust will be raised from the grave, God will fashion it into a new glorified body and, be, and it will be reunited with the person's spirit. Between death and Christ's coming for his saints, the believer might be said to be in a disembodied condition. However, this does not mean that he is not fully conscious and in, of the joy and bliss of heaven he is. This ultimate body that we will receive is called a spiritual body, not because it's ghostly, but because it's full of the Holy Spirit. It will be flesh and blood, uh, just like Jesus' body, remember? Remember? A spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have, he said to the disciples after his resurrection, and he ate food and so on. So it will be with us as well. And finally, uh, let me just mention this. I don't know if you picked up on this, but there are two words used for uh, the abode of our bodies. One is tent, and the other is what? One is temporary and one is permanent. What we have now is a temporary um, tent. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's not a house. It's like a, a moving, you know, RV or a, a camper or something like that. You know, that's what we're hanging out in today. Our tents will be dissolved. Our tents will be rebuilt into a permanent dwelling place for us in heaven. Well, I have one other issue that I wanted to speak about, but I'm not going to be able to reach it today or this morning. I'm going to think about whether I'll say something in the morning service about it or wait till this evening, but uh, it has to do with what I call the COVID pandemic in review. Uh, I think we're at a point now when I can say some things that are relevant to that subject, this being the second anniversary of the weekend in which we began to close down church services, and the rest of society back in 2020. So 
have, we have two years behind us to be able to speak with some wisdom about what we experienced, and I'll share a little bit about that as uh, the opportunity presents itself. Okay, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity to think about Scripture and the questions that we faced, uh, one having to do with witnessing to those who don't believe the Scriptures and, and try to detect a contradiction in the ways of God. We know your ways are perfect and just, and I pray you'd help us to give a decent accounting of them, if not perfectly satisfactory, because we know that we can't answer those 80 or 83 questions that you gave to Job in Job 38 to 42. We are finite and sinful creatures. We do not have the wisdom that you have, the capacity to understand, the power to create and move the circumstances of the world, and so we are left to trust you for those deep shortcomings that we have in our experience about those matters. And then, Lord, we want to thank you for the question from the young person who um, brought a seeming conundrum to us, and then the question about the uh, resurrection body that we receive, and a question about the timing of it. We're thankful that these topics have allowed us to explore some texts of Scripture whereby we can review what we know and learn again some things and, and keep, keep our feet from uh, false speculations or paths that would uh, guide us wrongly about these matters. Thank you for uh, the resurrection body that we will receive if we're Christians and how we will be able to uh, live forever in that in a perfect existence. We give you praise for it in the name of Christ who provided all of it for us in Jesus' name. Amen.